0: If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you.
1: And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and as he and I are recording the show on Wednesday, February 6th, 2019, it's just a few days after the 46th Annie's.
0: It is, that took place earlier this week, and a lot of people very excited about their new Annie Awards.
1: No more than the folks at Sony who took all seven categories that they were up for, and Uh, The Visual Effects Society, they, too, have an uh, an award, uh, the V.S. Award. And uh, pretty much the same thing. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse swept all four of the categories. It was nominated in there. So this Sony Pictures Animation film really is the one that you have to beat if you're going to take the Oscar this year, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, I was... uh... I was hanging out with another of the nominees, and I said, oh, maybe you'll win uh, an Oscar by the time this, this interview comes out. And he said, uh, I don't think so. So I think everybody everybody knows that Spider-Man is the one to beat.
1: Uh, the, among the other Academy Award nominees, they got nods at the annies. I mean, for example, Incredibles 2, it, it took home two annies. One for the best music in an animated production, which Michael Giacana,
0: Giacchino. Giacchino.
1: Michael Giacchino. yes. But, you know, again, he always does such wonderful work, and Incredibles also got Best Storyboarding in an Animated Feature Production, which that one, I think, might have been a tough call, if you think about how Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, how those boards must have been.
0: Yeah. It was a tough year, I feel like, Mm -hmm. at the Annies.
1: Ralph Breaks the Internet, uh, that took home the award for Best Animated Effects in an Animated Feature Production. I Love Dogs, a single award there, but that was for voice acting in an animated feature, and... That's for Brian Cranston's fine work in this Wes Anderson production. Also wanted to note here a couple of films and TV shows that Drew and I and I have talked up in previous fine-tuning episodes got some love at the Annie's. Uh, Hilda took home three awards. Uh, that Netflix series got Best Animated Television and Broadcast Production for Children. Took come on another award for character animation in an animated television show broadcast production, and the third was for best writing.
0: Hard to argue with that because that show is amazing.
1: Now, on the other hand, BoJack Horseman. Uh, Drew, I know this is a sore point. Have we actually <laughs> started watching this show yet? We
0: haven't. I know you're gonna hammer on me like you do on uh, Dan no. Eve to, to watch Star Wars Resistance. I will. I will start uh, BoJack very soon. That's my. It's my promise to you, Jim.
1: Okay, because again, it's just you live out there, all right? You should be in the cast. (laughs) I agree. Okay, so it took home the Best General Audience Animated Television Broadcast Production, and and Will Arnett, who voices the title character in Bojack, took home this year's Annie for Best Voice Acting. And Mary Poppins Returns also got two Annies, one for Best Animated Special Production And the other was for best character animation in a live production. Love that. Now, did you see in the Disney earnings call, they were actually talking about how the reason the studio didn't do as well as it had done last year was that they actually blamed it on Nutcracker in the Four Realms failing to start completely. But they also, the way they described Mary Poppins Returns was it did so-so at the box office. Right. I... Guess is true.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's no nutcracker in the four wheel. I mean, that is an unmitigated disaster, but. Yeah. Did you ever see that?
1: I'm literally looking at the Blu ray in the DVD. It showed up at the house the other day, and it's this cover, the DVD covered with snow. And it's just sort of like, <laughs> I'm in New Hampshire, it's February, there are polar bears on the lawn. <laughs> I will wait.
0: You're you're already in the Ice Realm.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah,
0: but I mean Mary Poppins Returns made 168 mm-hmm. million domestic and 160 foreign mm-hmm. for a worldwide cum of 330. I mean, that's pretty good for a movie that's a sequel to a movie that yeah. most of the people that saw it weren't alive for, you know, the first time. I don't know. I I feel like that they should count that as a win, but maybe I'm looking not looking you know, as forensically at at the numbers as I should.
1: By the way, have you been following this whole best song thing for the Academy Awards and how supposedly Lady Gaga arm twisted the Academy, which is having just a a terrible year in regard to this, the awards broadcast. But I guess originally they were just going to do the two songs of the five nominated songs. And I guess she threatened to pull out of the show if they, they didn't. I
0: mean, I give her a lot of credit for that
1: okay so how are you interpreting this word that's coming out of disney that a special guest will be performing where the lost things go
0: i can't figure that one out i mean it's not julie what's her name what's her name
1: julie andrews
0: (laughs) julie andrews it's not julie andrews okay because she has some kind of she had some kind of vocal operation right that she can't really sing anymore Mm
1: -hmm. supposedly The Balloon Lady, was written for Julie. Really? You had Dick Van Dyke come back as Mr. Dawes Jr. And the story I've heard is that supposedly Julie still can sing, but it's a much smaller register. I mean, she was famous for this huge octave range that she used to have. Right. But she can still sing. Supposedly, The Balloon Lady was written for Julie Andrews, and that's how they approached her. and. And it was going to be this very sweet on-screen moment where, you know, again, you know the moment where the balloon lady, you know, there's only one balloon left, Mary Poppins, I believe, this is yours. It was literally going to be a passing of the torch moment from one Mary Poppins to the other Mary Poppins. But Andrews was just like, "Eh, no, I I can't do that. This wouldn't be fair to Emily, especially so late in the film, it would pull people out of the movie. So in a weird sort of way, the choice of giving the role to Angela, uh, that works. But I just wonder, it would be relatively easy to say Emily Blunt, but very right. special guest. So I
0: know. I wonder if it's like someone modern, though, you know, like some pop star <laughs> or something. I don't know. Okay. You know, Katy Perry comes out to do the, Where the Lost Things Go.
1: I was going Patton Oswald. <laughs> but all right. Anyway, just quickly wrapping up the Andy's here. Also, Mirai, the film you were nice enough to sort of clue me into, uh, that took home Best Independent Animated Feature at the the issue Annie's. And then uh, those terrific Mickey Mouse shorts that Paul Ruddish and his team at Walt Disney Television Animation have been churning out since 2013, they took home two Annie's. Uh, They got Best Directing for Animated Television Broadcast and another for Best Music, which not really surprised. I mean, Chris Willis does such great work on that show musically.
0: He's amazing. And yeah. he's doing a new song, too, for the attraction, right?
1: Yes! I want to say Kevin Rafferty, the gentleman who's in charge of the attraction, was kind of warning me at the D23 Expo a couple of years ago about this thing's a complete earworm. It's like small world on heroin. So be ready to have to walk out with this in your head for the rest of the day. But while we're talking about Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, I guess we should let folks know that there seems to be some news here that they were shooting to have this attraction open in time for May first, which of course is the actual 30th anniversary of of uh, Disney's Hollywood Studios. In fact, uh, you know, if you look at the new logo for the studio, the you know Mickey and Minnie, the Paul Ruddish version of Mickey and Minnie, right in the center of it. But it's it's I guess the the, the train is behind schedule. It's running late, Drew. Aww. I'm hearing now July. Now, it was just last week, you and I were talking about the Pixar Spark shorts, uh, that artist project that folks at Emeryville just launched. And yeah. previously, the only place you could see these shorts was at the El Capitan Theater, where they were being shown with The Little Mermaid, which is being screened there as part of the 30th anniversary oh and
0: was- yeah they were doing that and they were you know they ha- there were a lot of like special programs for mm-hmm. bow which is in competition for the Oscars this year so i think there was a lot of stuff oh. going on there yeah
1: but before i forget speaking of the 30th anniversary of, of the little mermaid you were at a junket that Walt Disney Studios Home Entertainment was doing for what The Blu-ray, DVD, and digital download version of the 30th anniversary edition of The Little Mermaid.
0: Yes, which I feel like this is the 900th (laughs) version. (laughs) I feel like I already have a digital version from a couple of years ago, but anyway.
1: Okay, so there's been the Platinum Edition. There's been the Diamond Edition. This is the Signature Edition, as I understand it? Yes. What makes that different is, I guess, this is the first time the film has come out in Ultra 4K HD?
0: That sounds right. Okay. Sure. I mean, any any chance they can, I guess, to re-release re it. I think it's a, it's actually speaking to, to the company, kind of ramping up for the live action Little Mermaid, which will probably be here sooner rather than later.
1: This is true. Well, well, speaking of the release, okay, so the actual physical film, the Blu-ray, that's on hit store shelves February 26th, whereas the digital download, the Movies Anywhere version, that's February 12th. At the event, you get to talk with Ron Clements, obviously one of the directors of the Little Mermaid, likewise master Disney animator, Mark Ken, who was part of the team that worked with uh, Disney legend Glenn Keane on Ariel.
0: Yes. Also one of the nicest people in the world. He,
1: you know. he is. He is. But getting back to the Pixar Spark shorts here, and you no longer have to go to the El Capitan to check these things out. The first one, Pearl, just popped up online,
0: and yep.
1: I liked having the title character be a female ball of yarn who's loose in this generic office of a startup, and I thought the animators made some interesting choices as she tries to prove herself in a testosterone-laden environment, and I thought it had a good message, but over the past 10 years, there's been a number of Pixar shorts that, while they were entertaining, also managed to pass a message along to the movie going public. I mean, 2010's Night and Day, a 2015's Sanjay Super Team, a 2017's Lou. But Pearl, I just felt like the balance of entertainment versus getting a message across uh-huh. was kind of out of whack with this one. It, it, it sort of felt like a bran muffin with
0: way too much bran. Right. Well, I mean, we need to tell people that it's also almost nine minutes long, which is a lot longer than most Pixar shorts.
1: This is true. And, and you're the one who pointed out to me that Kirsten Lester, the writer and director of Pearl, is very upfront. About where the idea for this particular Pixar Spark short came from. There's a making-of video that accompanies this yeah. thing. And
0: yeah, there's a couple of little like featurettes that you can watch on YouTube as well.
1: And she's quoted in this thing as saying that Pearl is based on her experience being in animation. My first job, I was the only woman in the room, and so in order to do the thing that I loved, I sort of became one of the guys. And then when I came to Pixar and I started to work on teams with women for the first time, and that actually made me realize how much of the female aspect of myself I had sort of buried and left behind. And and then Jillian Liber Duncan, she's the producer of Pearl, she follows up Lester's origin story for the short by saying, when Kirsten came to me and said, this is the story I want to tell, I looked at her and said, oh my gosh, I lived the exact same thing. So I get it. This is a short that's based on experience that Lester and Libert Duncan actually had working in the field of animation. But here's the thing, Drew, I I have been to a lot of animation studios over the past 40 years. And I've never once been to one where the employees dressed like in flannel gray flannel suits like the original Broadway cast of how to succeed in business without really right. trying. And they're animators. You know, I mean, it's just, it's one of these things where, the, hey, did you see the game last night? I mean, it's like, no, no, they're animators. It's like, hey, did you see Family Guy last night? Right. But I get it. Animation's about exaggeration. You stretch things almost to the very break, breaking point to, to make things funny. And and that said, this is Pixar. The animation studio where, where John Lasseter, one of the company's founders, was just forced to leave Because he helped foster this this work environment where female employees in Emeryville felt uncomfortable. You you can't tell me that by making this the first Spark short, the first Pixar artist project out the door, the the one that you release online is the first taste that people see of, of this new effort that that there isn't a message being sent here. One that perhaps says, yeah. you know, we're aware of Pixar's problem in the past with the brotastic work environment and what women's had to deal with up here with John's wandering hands or the unwanted hugs, and we're working now to change that. That's great, but you know the old Samuel Goldwyn saying about if you want to send a message, use Western Union? And Right. And again, you just said it. At 8 minutes 43 seconds, this short... Doesn't seem all that short, and it seems a little ham-handed to me. I mean, me personally, I like my Pixar shorts to actually be short. And when they're not subversively funny, like Lifted or Presto, they're sweet, like Luna or Piper. And while I'm getting put on Pixar's list never to be invited to Emeryville ever again, (laughs) I'd like to circle back to Incredibles 2 for just a moment. Okay. Correct me if I'm wrong. It takes Brad Bird. 14 years. To come up with a compelling storyline for the sequel to The Incredibles, and so the best that Brad can do for the movie's B story is that Bob and Helen have to switch places with you know Helen going out in the world and she becomes a superhero or Bob stays home and deals with the kids. So Bob Parr suddenly discovers that being a homemaker is tough work, but because Bob perseveres, he he then reconnects with his kids and he becomes a better husband and a better father and. A, <laughs> Wonderful message for moviegoers to get. The only problem is, Drew, I got this message back in 1984 when 20th Century Fox released Mr. Mom into theaters, and back then it was Terry Garr and Michael Keaton who switched places, and when Mr. Mom was released to theaters back then, it did pretty well. It was the ninth highest grossing movie in Hollywood for all of 1983.
0: John Hughes screenplay.
1: Yes, and it sold $64 million worth of tickets. Which doesn't sound like a lot by today's standard, but keep in mind the number one film for that year, top ticket seller was uh, Return of the Jedi, and that sold 252 million worth of tickets. So mm-hmm. whereas Incredibles, it only sold $1.2 billion, <laughs> highest grossing <laughs> animated film domestically in Hollywood history. So so in short, what the hell do I know? Well, all right, here's what I know, though. As you pointed out at the end of Pearl, there was a card that read more spark shorts are coming to Disney plus in 2019. And what was kind of cool is under that, there was an actual line that said there's a physical Disney plus website at this point, or if you go, you can sign up to get updates about Disney's soon to debut subscription streaming service, which I guess according to yesterday's earnings call really isn't debuting soon.
0: Yeah, so I think there was a preconceived notion that the Disney Plus app would be at the end of fiscal 2019. So, like, you know, October-ish. But what I've heard is it will be launching by the end of calendar 2019. Okay. So that gives it a few more months to be refined. And I know that they want to make a big splash and try to have some of the big movies and TV shows ready. By then, but what will be on there, I'm sure, are the Spark Shorts. Mm-hmm. There's another one debuting next week called Smash and Grab. That's about two antiquated robots. Mm-hmm. So I'm very excited about that. And then the week after that is Kit bull, which is about a friendship between a stray kitten and a pit bull. So maybe you'll like one of those shorts a little bit better, Jim. All
1: right, I'm sorry. I I got (laughs) up this morning and put on my crabby pants. Okay, (laughs) before I get myself into any more trouble here, we should talk about what you learned yesterday at that Walt Disney Studios Home Entertainment Junket. So give us a minute here, then Mr. Taylor will share what he knows. Before we get started here, I need to point out yesterday's junket was a twofer, right? It it wasn't just about the 30th anniversary signature, not platinum, not diamond, signature (laughs) edition of The Little Mermaid. It was also about Ralph Breaks the Internet.
0: Yeah, of course.
1: Which, just like Mermaid, will be available as a digital download on Movies Anywhere on February 12th, and then hit store shelves as a Blu-ray, DVD, and Ultra 4K HD. On February 26th. Yeah. So you got to talk with the film's two directors, uh, Rich Moore and Phil Johnson, right?
0: Yes, as well as uh, Clark Spencer was there, the great uh, producer. Oh, yeah,
1: I love Clark. I remember talking with him. And if you you look back over Clark's career, he always takes on these ridiculous projects where it's like, well, you have to do this giant city. You think about Ralph Breaks the Internet and you have to do the entire internet. Right. And visually make that work and how you budget for that how you make the time they had some trouble themselves figuring out how to start ralph breaks the internet
0: yeah so somebody who had seen an earlier version of the movie had told me that at one point it opened up with the classic disney storybook and that it was sort of a it was a recap of ralph and vanellope's adventures but but from ralph's point of view so it was completely wrong Mm -hmm. and they ultimately Jettisoned that idea because they didn't know if people were going to be confused by this sort of like wrong version of the movie, the movie, the first movie. It's like, wait, is that really what happened? So they got rid of that. But then they (laughs) said, you know, we're the only Disney movie that has opened with a storybook, but also a funeral. Because at one point, they were beginning the movie with the funeral of Tapper, who is the kind of like bartender Mm -hmm. character. And the you know, the game had been unplugged. And that was a big part of the movie. But no more, Jim, no more.
1: Hmm, okay. And you also got to talk with Ellen Tudyk, who is rapidly becoming Walt Disney Animation Studios' equivalent of John Ratzenberg.
0: Yeah, for sure, yeah. But you were also
1: saying that he doesn't take that for granted.
0: No, no, he said, you know, like, uh, he didn't know that he was even going to be in Moana until after the movie was finished. And he literally just made clucking noises to the finished screen for two hours, and they put it all in the movie, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> oh my god! You know, I yeah. That. Oh, yeah. Um, but he says, you know, I don't know if they're gonna call me. I don't know, you know. And I said, well, you know, we have Frozen Two coming out in November, and he said, oh, is it that soon? Mm-hmm. But he would not confirm whether or not he's in it. Another funny thing was right when I was leaving, I was like, you know, it must be daunting, you know, knowing that that children are gonna be listening to your voice in a hundred years. And he said. Oh, uh, there won't be any children in a hundred years. There's not gonna And I said, Oh, okay. Wow. So, That's not the most uh, uplifting ending to, to wow. the interview.
1: That's a little bleak. You know, <laughs> what does Alan know that we don't? All right. All right. Oh, speaking of the, it's the things that you know that the rest of us don't, what about the extras? Are we in fact gonna get those princess scenes that get clipped or carved down or some of the fun stuff dropped
0: no is the short answer the th- sort of 30 percent that you and i saw back at d23 and were shown i think at the long lead day mm-hmm. even is not in there but i am going to vigorously go through the special features before our next recording and i'm going to give a great rundown that everyone will just be on the edge of their seats to listen to
1: but you did say that there is one aspect there,
0: Yes, there is a bit of stuff that, you know, to circle back to Incredibles 2, there was this huge subplot Mm -hmm. in Ralph Breaks the Internet of Calhoun and Felix raising the other Sugar Rush drivers Mm -hmm. as this kind of like crazy nuclear family. And that stuff is going to be on the DVD. I think Entertainment Weekly debuted one of those scenes earlier today. So you'll get... Your fix of Ralph stuff, yeah. I mean, by the time this episode airs, it'll probably be out on digital. So, okay, uh, yeah, you'll get it all.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and and speaking of being available when this episode it is, obviously, again the uh, the digital download movies anywhere version of the Little Mermaid, and and as we mentioned, uh, the front half of the show, you get to talk with Ron Clements, who you know directed this with John Musker, but you you also get to talk with Mark Hen, which he was part of the team that opened the Magic of Disney Animation tour. He was part of the dedicated animated team that you literally looked at in the fishbowl as you you toured this exhibit at at Disney's Hollywood Studios. And Mark was down there when this opened again, May 1st, 1989. But Mermaid doesn't hit theaters till November of 89. So how did he make the jump to Florida?
0: Well, what was interesting, first of all, is that you know Mark is, like, the most mild-mannered guy in the world. Oh, yeah. He's a sweetheart. Yeah. He's a sweetheart. And, he, you know, I asked him one time, like, you know, you've moved desks so many times. What do you keep on your desk? Mm. he said, you know, I keep my Bible. And, you know, it's like, okay, you are, like, the nicest, like, most cordial person in the world. But he did bristle when I brought this up because he said, you know, I thought that it was kind of stupid to have another Disney Animation Studios. He he thought that... it was somehow kind of like infringing on the purity of the Disney animation studios. And he did not want to go, mm-hmm. but Peter Schneider, who was head of animation back then, who we both know, mm-hmm. um, came to him and said, you know, you have a really op- great opportunity here to be this kind of elder statesman mm-hmm. to foster the talent and growth of many young artists. Because I mean, almost the entirety of that crew down there were young artists, mm-hmm. but you know, people that, are, that we now know, like Byron Howard and Chris Sanders and Dean Dubois were all down there.
1: Oh, and the Bancroft brothers, yeah. And
0: the Bancroft brothers, yep. Yeah. And he said, you know, that conversation really flipped my perspective on it, and I it was something that I really got behind. And he was there, I mean, until the kind of work dried up in Florida, I yeah, think. Yeah, no, he, um, he
1: was there right till the end. And in fact, it, yeah. what was fascinating about Mark is that he was one of the only, only people who when they shut down in two thousand three was offered basically a seat in the lifeboat. He was taken back to California and in fact yeah. even today is still in the building, which is just startling,
0: yeah, and and he contributed to Ralph Breaks the Internet. He was the one that did the um, Mickey Mouse animation on top of the building he when did. she goes, he to, did. Yeah, yeah, and he did the uh the park ranger and the bear as well in the
1: background. Uh, That's Humphrey,
0: it. so love of my yeah, life. Humphrey, yes, okay. <laughs>
1: you also got to talk, of course, with Ron Clemens,
0: yes, he's still in the building, he was the guy
1: who actually brought. The idea in the door, right? I mean, you know, the, the famous... Yes, yeah, he
0: did confirm this. He said that he brought in um, the Little Mermaid story. Mm-hmm. He was at a bookstore in North Hollywood. I'm assuming he was talking about the Iliad, mm-hmm. which... Have you ever been to that bookstore, Jim?
1: I've heard wondrous things about it. I'm yeah. afraid to go we'll, there because... We'll, we'll, again... Yeah,
0: we'll go next time, yeah. Okay. But he was supposed to only pitch five things. Mm-hmm. It ended up that he was whittling it down to one, mm-hmm. and he ended up pitching... Little Mermaid, but of those five ideas, obviously, the, one of the other ones, and this has been repeated a lot, was the uh Treasure Planet in outer space idea that eventually became Treasure Planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he was the one that brought it there, but there was, but he he said it got gonged, it did, it did, because they were in development of, of a Splash 2 at the time, a theatrical Splash 2.
1: Yeah, and of course, that eventually got bumped to the Disney Sunday night movie. In fact, it was the very first thing. In fact, coincidence that Mark's part of the team that starts Disney uh, NGM Studios' Magic of Disney Animation exhibit. Splash 2 was the very first thing shot at the then still under construction Disney MGM Studios.
0: Oh, that's right. And that's where that's why that uh, fountain was there. For there we a go. Time, right? There we go.
1: When that fell by the wayside, they circled back and said, hey, can you develop A script for Mermaid and the poor guy is, he and John Musker are face down in trying to get the Great Mouse Detective out the door when they're like, hey, that mermaid idea, can you develop that? Because we need something to be in the the pipeline behind Oliver and Company.
0: Oh, I have a story about that, by the way. Do you know? So I asked him your question Mm -hmm. about the the Katzenberg, the greenlit Great Mouse Detective Mm -hmm. versus the Katzenberg that was working on Little Mermaid. And he told me this fascinating story that he took mm-hmm. Frank and Ollie's book, mm-hmm. which, as we all know, is a oh, yeah. doorstopper, mm-hmm. he took it on vacation with him mm-hmm. to Hawaii during this process, read it cover to cover, mm-hmm. and became just a sponge for every single facet of how the animation process works, which I thought was utterly fascinating. Wow. So I'd never heard that before.
1: Well, now, speaking of reading, the the famous story of when John and Ron pitched the Great Mouse Detective too, Eisner, Katzenberg, and Wells. And there was no script. They were just storyboards. So they lined the third floor of the, the animation building with all of the boards. And on a Saturday, evidently spent like two hours walking down the hallway, Eisner had made movies like Raiders and that sort of thing that were very storyboard dependent. But there was also a physical script. Right. Evidently, by the end of the afternoon, the three of them are exhausted. And they're like, yeah, I guess it's a good movie. Okay, we'll put it into production. But we're not doing this again. From here on in, before we decide you guys have to write scripts. And so that's what they wound up doing with Little Mermaid, which proved to be a problem with the second act when Ariel didn't talk.
0: Yeah, they said that that required a lot of finessing with the executives, but Mark, who was sitting there with Ron, said, you know, for me, Mm -hmm. it was an animator's dream because of all this great kind of pantomime Mm -hmm. and and stuff like that. But yeah, that was a real struggle to get through.
1: Evidently, because Ariel didn't talk for a good chunk of the movie, they needed her to be partnered with a character that just talked a mile a minute, just, just could fill any narrative gap. And what they decided to do was to pair her with a dolphin called Breaker. Yes. That's all I knew. You were the one who uncovered this amazing detail about who did they want to try to get for Breaker.
0: Yeah, they wanted to get Robin Williams. But I guess that the character never evolved to the point that they ever recorded with mm-hmm. anybody. And a lot of the lines just went to Ariel. Mm-hmm. That They found out that, this is what Ron said yesterday, was that you know by giving her a lot of his lines, she became a much more assertive character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which is fascinating. But, I mean, also, it's fascinating to think of Robin Williams in a Disney animated movie before Aladdin.
1: This was something that Ron and John sort of carried over from The Great Mouse Detective, that they had watched what had happened when you know people learned about The Great Mouse Detective and they, that Vincent Price was the voice of Radigan. Just by having a good, strong cast, but having one celebrity... One celebrity voice, it really sort of ratcheted up the you know, attention for the film and it gave it more energy. And so as they approached The Little Mermaid, this was part of their pitch. Let's just let's select one character and make it a celebrity. And that was Robin Williams. But if you look at the film that preceded it, Oliver and Company, you've got Billy Joel, you've got Bette Mittler, you've got Dom DeLuise. You yeah, had a lot of celebrities. And by the time The Little Mermaid was being made and we had Howard Ashman and Alan Menken... Basically, driving the bus on this project. Howard was the one who actually cast a lot of the movie. And for example, he got Jodie Benson to do the voice of Ariel. He knew her because she had been cast in his The Broadway musical he was doing with Marvin Hamlish, Smile.
0: Right. The infamous smile. Yeah.
1: But now we jump ahead to Aladdin. And Ron and John really, really wanted Robin Williams to do the voice of the genie. But the interesting thing is, and in fact, it it says it in the screenplay, that when the genie appears, he is a Robin Williams-like character. That's literally the phrase in the script. But they actually told Katzenberg in this situation, if we can't get him, we'd be willing to also maybe explore how Steve Martin would do this character, or Martin Short, and Katzenberg had been after getting Robin Williams to work at Disney. In fact, evidently he was one of the very first people Katzenberg reached out to after he came on board at Disney. In fact, we, we were just talking about this last week, right? That, that Wells and, and Eisner started on September 24th, 1984. And Katzenberg doesn't come through the door at Disney till October 1st. Right? Right. Okay. Katzenberg is is immediately signed. You have to get things in production for both television and movies at Disney. And so Jeffrey finds two scripts, one of which is is Down and Out in Beverly Hills, which was the first Touchstone film that was made under Eisner that came out into theaters July 31st, 1986. So they got that out the door as quick as they could do it, but you had to go out and cast Nick Nolte, you had to get Bette Bintler, you had to get Richard Dreyfus. there was another script that Katzenberg put into development at the exact same time called Offbeat.
0: Who could forget Offbeat, first of all? (laughs) Oh, right. (laughs) Every every person in the whole world. Well,
1: no, that's it exactly. It's it's a Judge Reinhold Meg Tilly movie. Uh, It's about a librarian in New York City who roller skates around the stacks who... Uh, through plot devices that are too much to get into at this point, you know, it has to, <laughs> to it impersonates a New York cop. Katzenberg thought that this would be a great vehicle for Robin Williams. In fact, his pitch to Robin Williams was, come do Offbeat and you'll be the very first film that we release. You'll be our Mickey. You know, the first movie out the door that Michael and I and Frank do will star you. And Robin read the script, and you have to understand that this is a Robin Williams who's post-GARP, and he's doing things like Club Paradise and Moscow on the Hudson, and they aren't connecting with audiences. And he's looking at this, and it really is kind of a dumb, light, romantic comedy. And he's like, nah, thank you, no. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Katzenberg keeps at him and eventually delivers the script for Good Morning Vietnam and bundles that with barry levinson and it's like okay william's like all right i'm in people forget the one-two punch with that movie that movie came out just three months after three men and a baby and those two films combined sort of made hollywood pivot and like what the hell's going on at disney they're making all of these movies that really connect in a big way with mainstream audiences and he's there he's on the reservation But does Disney land him for his first animated role? No, he ends up voicing Batty Coda for Fern Gully. I think you talked to Eric Goldberg about this. About you know he did the the test piece of animation that they did off of his reality. What a concept album!
0: Right. Yes. And they
1: took the footage to the set of Hook, and you know showed it to him there, and he's like, "All right, sure, I'll do it." We could get into the whole uh, Robin's falling out with Disney. I mean, you know, that he got so mad at Disney because he felt that the way they were advertising Aladdin in December of 92 kind of overshadowed. In fact, the, he, the, the follow-up project that he and Barry Levinson did after a uh, good morning Vietnam toys, this was a script that Levinson had been nursing for 20 some odd years and Thought that you know Robin's the perfect guy to do this, and that movie came out and crashed and burned in a spectacular way, and yeah, and Williams had nothing to do with Disney for, geez, it was like four years, wasn't it? I mean, he uh,
0: yeah, it was a long time. Yeah, he although he got a he got a Picasso out of it though, right?
1: You can watch the Golden Globes that year. Gets a certificate rather than an award on stage. And you know, he does this wonderful riff, you know. Because again, this is at the point where the Golden Globes are still, you know, in this sort of Piazzadora post Piazzadora period, where it's just sort of like if you pile up enough money, you can get an award. And he stands on stage, with a certificate, and says, "What is it? It's a certificate." So I turn this in, and I get an award. You know, <laughs> you know just totally humiliated the Golden Globe folks. But Williams didn't actually come back to work to Disney. Till after Katzenberg left. He felt it, it was Jeffrey personally who sort of betrayed him with the way Aladdin was promoted and that sort of thing. So, yeah, he didn't do come back to do the voice work on Aladdin and the King of Thieves, which was released in August of 1996. Till Katzenberg was long gone and had set up shop at DreamWorks Animation.
0: He also made, uh, you know, in the same period, in 89, he made Dead Poet Society for Disney. He did. Too. He
1: did. That did very well on the awards uh, circuit. But it's worth mentioning that during the same period where he's making serious actor movies for Disney, Imagineering reaches out and it's like, Hey, we have this idea for a theme park show called timekeeper and let's run this by you. And Robin had just previously done the very exhibit that opened up where where Mark worked at Disney and Jam the, The film with Walter Cronkite.
0: Oh, I love that. And yeah, it's
1: it. You know, in a weird sort of way, that was honestly one of the more fun magical things out of that that whole park. You know, during its opening summer, it was just sort of the pairing of those two and and dropping him into the storyline of Peter Pan. And I mean, it was a a beautifully done Uh, film.
0: I love that film. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah,
1: and it was the notion of well, I've done an attraction, but it's this time. You're going to be an animatronic, and he's like, "Oh, I'm in." Come on, you know, (laughs) right? And they filmed him recording the lines, and so much of the body language, the movement for Robin that you saw in the attraction was based on what he did in the recording studio. But before we close here, I have to share my my favorite little secret of the 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 Timekeeper attraction. You saw that in the parks, right? Oh,
0: I am a I'm a big fan, yeah.
1: Okay. How long did you stay in the show?
0: I don't know. I I it, it's been year. I mean, obviously it closed in the early 2000s, so I think you're going to have to remind me.
1: Okay. When the show recycled. So it comes to the the very moment where the show is supposed to recycle and they're going to load the next audience in. And literally the only people who got to see this are people who basically disobeyed the Disney cast members and hung on for that moment where the doors closed. So it's time for the show to start. And he literally restarts. You can hear like a key in in a car that... Oh, that's so cool. And and, and literally the figure shakes like... And then finally it's like... And he's up, he's moving. And, and you know, he then turns and greets the audience. But it was just just this little audio cue that they created that was only for, to entertain the cast members who had to watch that thing 20, 30, 40 times a day. It's a show I miss, you know, even to this day. I, I think it was just such a wonderful expansion of, you know, what they had done with the Circle Vision 360 and the to tell a story. And I, I also, I love the story of, H. G. Wells and Jules Fern and Rhea Perlman also did great work. But
0: Yeah, it was a it was a great show. And I don't know how many people have actually seen it. I mean it was it was there for a mm. long time. So I'm, I'm assuming a lot of people watched it, but mm. always always seemed to be standing in that theater with a few fewer people than I thought that there would be. I mean, it was pretty empty in there sometimes, but mm. it was a great show, I agree completely.
1: What would be intriguing for me right now is if if we could go back and watch that today because they did so much on location work in france and and around paris and when you think about i I would love especially you with 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 your expertise on mission impossible to you know whether or not you could recognize some of the the places where they shot fallout (laughs) filming
0: yeah 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 Yeah. i'm sure yeah it was amazing that it was a 360 show that had a narrative structure to it
1: it showed it could be done so you know i just i wish they tried to do it again well again speaking of mission impossible which again big news you know the, the two films coming out what, what 2020
0: 2021 uh yeah 21 and 22 oh 21 22. A, yeah yeah okay. we have a little bit but we'll have top gun next year it'll be fine we'll get, <laughs> you'll get your fix of okay. <laughs> well falling off of things
1: all right now now again you have your your, your wonderful mission impossible you know centric podcast like yeah. the fuse you were alluding to special guests a while ago can we talk about them now
0: We can't talk about them yet, but I can tell you who's coming up in the immediate future. Mm -hmm. Um, So this week, the week that we're recording, is the first episode with Robert Elswit, who is an Academy Award-winning cinematographer. He shot Tomorrow Never Dies, Mm -hmm. and There Will Be Blood, and he shot uh, Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation. So the Ghost Protocol conversation is this week, and then Rogue Nation is next week. And he is amazing. Uh, Jim, you will get such a kick out of him. He is just an old-school... Hollywood guy who has the best stories and does not give a damn about who he's making upset anymore. So I think you'll really love it. And um, yeah, after that, we've got some guys from Filmograph who did the, speaking of animation, they did the title sequences for Mm. Rogue Nation and Fallout. So beyond that, yeah, we have a really big, super huge guest um, an incredible guest, really. One might say.
1: Oh, okay. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. All right. All right. But yeah. don't give it away. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, again, when you're not listening to do those great shows, and you got some free time, we got some other stuff over at the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. We got the Disney Dish Show, which I do with Lontesto, We got Marvelous Disney, which I record with the amazing Aaron Adams. We have Looking at Lucasfilm, which I do with the. Great Danza here, and we have Universal Joint, which I do with Dustin Fuse. And that's a lot of podcasts.
0: But all worth your time, every single one. But obviously this one is the best. Well,
1: there you go. So- sorry, Len,
0: uh, but, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, speaking of podcasts, folks, if you would help Drew and I out, if you could head over to iTunes and radar shows and write a review, that sort of thing, that would be very helpful to get other people aware of the shows.
0: It would. Yeah,
1: that's it for this week though I guess you and I are going to be recording one like really quick because you're going to be seeing how to shine your dragon hidden world like
0: in a minute tomorrow yeah 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 I'm excited Uh, so yeah yeah, there'll be a lot of good stuff next time I promise
1: you get to do such cool stuff And (laughs) on behalf of Mr. Taylor and myself thank you for listening and we'll be back soon
0: be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of fine tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.